Welcome to History Talk, the podcast that brings together a panel of experts to discuss current events and historical perspective. I'm your host, Patrick Patyandi. And I'm your other host, Mark Sikalski. Today, we address the past, present, and future of the European Union, that unique institution that has brought together 28 sovereign states and over 500 million Europeans under one political and economic roof. Joining us today to discuss the history of the EU and the challenges it faces are Donald Hempson, Chris Otter, and Lauren Henry. I'm Don Hempson, uh, Director of the International Operations for the College of Engineering here at Ohio State University. I also teach courses on security, uh, diplomacy, and uh, European affairs for the International Studies Department here at OSU. Um, I'm Chris Otter. I'm a professor in the history department. Um, I teach classes on British history, European history, as well as history of science, technology, uh, medicine, environment. Uh, I'm Lauren Henry. I'm a graduate student in the history department. I study modern French history and French colonial history, and I teach classes on modern European history and the history of empires and uh, nationalism in a global and European context. Thanks uh, to everyone for joining us today, um, and especially to Lauren here, phoning in from Athens all the way. Um, and so to start off, we'd like to give our listeners a sense of exactly what the EU is and where it came from. Um, so maybe just kind of let's cover a little bit of the historical origins of the European Union. Um, when and why was it created? And maybe, Don, if you wanted to start us off with this question. Sure. Uh, the European Union really began shortly after the end of the Second World War with something called the European Coal and Steel Community, um, an attempt to bring six countries together in an attempt to, to integrate some of their economies and, and their primary industries with the idea that those with shared economic interests are less likely to repeat the devastations and the, the hostilities that had, had plagued the continent with the first two world wars. Um, and it really evolved from there. It evolved from a community of six countries, six states, primarily in Western Europe, to become more integrated economic community of states, becoming the European community, and eventually evolving through a series of treaties to become the European Union that we know today, expanding, really the largest expansion being in 2004 when it nearly doubled in size, but again, again, bringing in additional states since that time. So just generally speaking, who at the beginning were the big proponents of European integration, either the people themselves or the particular states? Primarily, I'd, I'd say the, initi the initial push for the European integration, the European coal and steel community, uh, came from state-level actors. Not to say that there wasn't sort of popular support for this in, in some way, but um, unless you go back to earlier periods in the 20th century and some late 19th century movements uh, that you know, were sort of pan-European that had some popular support, you were really looking in the, the late 40s, early 50s at state-actor-driven diplomatic driven initiatives to create a scenario whereby, again, sort of the quote-unquote bad actors of the, the, the previous um, conflicts actually integrated their interest economically. And so this was being driven by the international community at the highest level, both from the state actors that were coming together, France, West Germany, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and Italy, but also some of the other drivers of international affairs at that time, the United States, the UK, and, and, and others encouraging this type of integration. How far back do visions of a united Europe go? I'll jump in there. Sure. I mean, but please, don't want to be the only one talking. Keep going, um, keep going. There are a number of uh, uh, 19th century movements in, in various forms that you could probably trace this eventual move to what we know as the European Union. Um, this can be some that come to mind or 
pan-European movement that really kind of came together in the late 19th century in various forms. And it's hard to say that there was one consistent movement, but this idea that there was a shared interest in coming together either economically or you know, diplomatically in sort of a cohesive unit. You even had smaller type of, of um, regional, if you will, attempts, pan-Slavism, um, attempts to sort of unite segments of the European continent by shared ethnicity or shared geography. Um, some have, I think, have even argued that that's what Napoleon was trying to do in, in his conquest of Europe was to create a unified Europe, clearly under a little bit more different model than, than, than we see today, <laughs> one that may have been a little bit more problematic to the citizens than what we see today. Um, but it depends on how you want to look at, at what we mean by an integrated Europe and a, and a common Europe as to how far back we want to push and um, those definitions or look for those types of trends. But I'd say certainly what we saw in the, the aftermath of World War II was consistent with similar movements that date back to the mid-19th century. It, is there a sense that the that the both world wars there were really uh, maybe a key pivot for the final creation of the European Union? Uh, if I could step in here. Yeah, go for it, Lauren. Yeah, I think it's almost impossible to understand European integration without thinking about the legacy of the first two world wars. I mean, I remember uh, around the turn of the century uh, when the European Union, uh, sorry, when the, when the euro was first introduced, there was a sort of joke that said, if you had told somebody in 1900 that you could use the same currency at a cafe in Paris or in Berlin, the person would ask you, well, who conquered who? <laughs> uh, so I think that, you know, the, the mindset shifts after the Second World War. And that's really where the initial move to put together a, a union based on economics, which is really centered in kind of the Franco-German rapprochement that happens after the end of the war. I mean, the European coal and steel community is sort of built out of the industry in that area, in the Ruhr Valley. And so the idea that not only in general are people who are more closely economically integrated, less likely to fight one another, but, but that France and what's then West Germany at the time being more economically integrated uh, would be less likely to fight each other is, incre is incredibly salient. It's, it's no coincidence that one of the two capitals of the European Union is in Strasbourg, a city in, in the Alsace region that changed hands between the French and the Germans uh, through the course of the 19th and 20th century as a result of their frequent conflicts. Uh, Chris, do you have a sense on, we've mentioned coal and steel here several times mm -hmm. as a post-World War II right. key issue. Why those issues as kind of the base here for kind of European economic integration? Do you have a sense of that? Well, I think as Lauren as Lauren just said, I mean, aside from the fact that these are these are arguably the two most important industrial resources in in the whole of Europe. Okay, they're also resources, particularly coal, that are located right in that sort of contested uh, Franco-German region, and the the and obviously the the sort of industrialized nature of Alsace-Lorraine is one of the reasons why there's a continued fight over that area. And, and so, if this is placed under some sort of common agreement, then the idea is that there will no longer be resource wars. Between between the between the French, uh, the coal poor French and the coal rich Germans. Mm, okay, trying to move away from the conflicts of the early twentieth century was a key component in the formation of the coal and steel community and the European economic community. How did motivations change with the integration of other countries? So, in the with Britain and other places in Europe, I think there are each country has its probably its own set of particular motivations. If you look at the British case. 
Britain was very generally fairly happy for the uh, the coal and steel community to be formed, and had no desire whatsoever to be part of it. You know, as Winston Churchill say, you know, famously, "We are we are with but not of Europe." Britain in in the immediate post-war period was nationalising its industries. The last thing it wanted was then to reintegrate them into some supernatural, uh, supernatural, <laughs> supernatural agency. And the many of the the British uh, post-war governments, particularly the Labour governments, were were dismissive uh, of joining of joining Europe. They they liked the idea of re- retaining national sovereignty in in every area. But I think the sort of the the political balance between countries is also important. De Gaulle was 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 very much opposed to Britain joining the uh, the European Community, and and after his um, his resignation in I think sixty nine. Pompidou was was much more pro-British. This coincided with Heath becoming prime minister in Britain. He he's quite clearly the most Europhilic um, prime minister in the post-war British period. And so a sort of combination of, 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 of I think of that of that sort of political level in a sense. And yeah, the effects of decolonization, the distancing uh, in time from the end of World War II contributed certainly to to Britain's motivations to join in the 70s. But unlike a lot of other countries, Britain did not ever get fully with the programme. You know, there's, there's, there was never... Uh, Britain was very happy for, for a free trade zone. Uh, and um, people will repeatedly say that, that we, we wanted that, we liked that, but we never wanted anything else. And, and I think that's a pretty unique position. I mean, you have to sort of think that some countries never joined. Norway never joined. Sweden, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Switzerland never joined. Um, and, and other, uh, various countries have had their own sets of particular motivations. So I think it, I, th- I don't think there's any single pattern here. Yeah, I would agree with Chris on that part. I mean, you really do need to, as, as the European community evolves into the European Union and this greater integration occurs, you really do need to look at what is the motivation behind each of those countries. Um, and you can isolate them to certain countries and maybe even certain blocks. Um, you know, for instance, in the late 80s and throughout the 1990s, for those states that had been trapped behind the Iron Curtain in Soviet-dominated Eastern Europe for the latter half of the 20th century, many of them saw membership in the European Union as a return to Europe, various ways in which that could be defined. And again, that becomes, you know, dependent on which country you're looking at. But this sort of general idea that membership in the European Union meant they'd been rehabilitated, that they'd been brought back into the fold. And even in places like the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia, what become the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland, and Hungary, they even saw that as a way of dropping the adjective, right, that they were no longer the other Europe. They were no longer Eastern Europe. But the European Union, as much as it brought some certain economic benefits in terms of funds for rehabilitating some of their, their economy, their infrastructure, things of that nature, it was very symbolic of returning to the fold, returning to a cultural home that they had always felt part of. Gaining a status, maybe. There's status, and in, in absolutely. But I think also a sense that they are always have been okay. culturally Europe that they have not been these sort of tread-upon satellite states of a monolithic Soviet empire on the fringe of Europe, but certainly a status as well. I was just going to say that I think that this idea of the membership in the European, uh, you know, whether it's the European Economic Community or the European Union as a status symbol and the sort of symbolic resonance of it is really, I think, 
an important factor and even dates before the bringing in of these of these post-communist states. Looking at the expansion of the EU in the 80s and the uh, the entrance of Spain and Portugal, uh, these are two countries that sort of also use membership in the European community as a way of kind of signaling their membership and of sort of moving out of isolation. Of course, in both of these cases, it's less about, you know, a post-communist uh, development and sort of moving past dictatorship. So the, the death of Franco uh, in Spain and the Carnation Revolution in Portugal in 74 and the establishment of democracies there. So I think it's an interesting sort of pattern that we see that in some ways, membership in the European community and then later the uh, European Union becomes seen as sort of a validation or uh, a recognition that you're a member of kind of larger democratic society in Europe. And maybe quickly, that makes me wonder, have current member states, you know, at any point in time, always wanted to expand the European Union? And maybe what are the limits of that expansion? Because at some point, as you go further and further east, the question does become, when are these nations or states European or not? I mean, that's that age-old question. Where does Europe begin? Okay. Where does it end? Where is it? You know, um, you know, we all got those in grade school, or maybe not so much anymore, but is it a geographic definition, a political definition? Um, and I think that's where some of the, the challenges of the way the EU has evolved um, are coming into play in contemporary events. Okay. I mean, to step back just for a moment to the origins um, conversation we were having, you could define what the European coal and, and steel community was. You understood the limits of it, right? What were the objectives of it? Um, as you've evolved into what is now the European Union, it's not just a, a question of how far does it expand, but what is it? Is it simply an economic or is it a political or is it a, a status symbol? And that is as much as a part of the conversation, I think, as what are the, the physical limits of the European Union? Exactly. And and I think, yeah, that the physical limits is one question, but the the political and legal limits is another. And certainly the European Union has evolved in not necessarily intentional ways from being a, a relatively small economic union to be to being a sprawling and politically extremely complex politico economic uh, judicial uh, union. And, and this is where conflicts begin to begin to arise again to sort of repeat what I said earlier on for for Britain which I think is a unique a very unique case um, the Britain has always been a, really a predominantly free trading country for the last you know couple of hundred years this has been the dominant economic ideology and therefore the idea of a, of a free trading zone is very was very very appealing. But Britain is also firmly opposed to federalism, it, probably more so than, than most European countries. And the idea of ceding any kind of national sovereignty is, is political suicide in, in Britain. And both parties, in, both major parties in Britain, have never wanted to, to go down that, down that route. So as the European Union has expanded in terms of, in terms of its functions, this is this has created problems problems across Europe, but certainly problems with with regard to Britain. Lauren, do you want to add anything to that? Oh, I was just going to say with the sort of as far as this question of what the EU is, you know, where its 
jurisdiction lies. And one of the things that I find interesting is that in the sort of debate about Britain's continued membership in the EU, which I hope we'll get a chance to talk about just a little bit, uh, there's this sort of fixation uh, on a specific phrase that comes from the 1957 Treaty of Rome, which set up the European Economic Community, uh, where the signatories of the treaty pledged to work towards, quote, an ever closer union. And it seems that if you read anything about the so-called debate around, you know, the Brexit, this phrase ever closer Mm. union comes up again and again and again. And I think maybe that's, you know, where some of this lack of clarity comes from, because it's never really defined what the ever closer union was supposed to look like. And yet at the same time, it seems interesting to me because uh, the idea, as Professor Otter just said, that Britain is essentially a free trading nation. And that's where some of this comes from. seems really true because in conversations on the continent, Broadly speaking, you don't often hear people really fixating on this line. There's a sort of sense that it doesn't have the same kind of symbolic resonance or maybe the same kind of symbolic dread uh, attached to it that it does in other places. You know, it just sounds like a a sort of a beautiful phrase. But the ever closer union has, I think, somewhat of an ominous tone to it in other contexts. Okay, so self-definition is certainly one challenge the EU has always faced and continues to face. And why don't we jump into Brexit right now as one of the current challenges facing the EU. What, you know, broadly speaking, would be the reservations that Britons have now and and how different are those from um, what we've seen in the past? Sure. I mean, I think it just to sort of give a bit of context here, obviously, the what we have at the moment in Britain is that one of the major parties, the Conservative Party, has become effectively a Eurosceptic party. There's this term Eurosceptic, which is only about 20 years old. This has now become a sort of central policy of the of the Conservative Party. This really hasn't always been the case, as I've sort of hinted earlier on. The the Labour Party was was initially the more Eurosceptic of the two countries, partly because of the the fear of excessive free trade as as we were going through a more socialistic phase in in Britain, and this kind of reversal in British party politics took place in the late 80s and early 90s as and really was defined by Margaret Thatcher who while being nominally pro-european at the at the start of her of her ministry in in 79 by the late 80s and a famous speech she gave in Bruges I think in 1988 Thatcher was was basically saying that, that there is now sort of integration by stealth that this this economic union is effectively a Trojan horse for all kinds of socialistic Marxist horrors being uh, being sort of developed in Brussels and, and expanding and extending their tentacles into places like Britain. And this became really the this is really the origins of Euroscepticism as we see it. And then you have to remember that Euroscepticism has a bunch of different origins. There is sort of xenophobia, but it's too simplistic to call it that. There is British nationalism. There's also British hyperglobalism, the idea that, you know, Britain is a global free trading country with connections all over the place. Why should we have special connections with, with one relatively small part of the globe? There are people who worry about sovereignty. This, in combination with some of the more rabid statements of the of the tabloid press in Britain, then sort of generating the rise of the referendum party and UKIP and so forth, has created a point where now in Britain, Europe is one of the major dividing lines between between parties. And we'll have a referendum fa- fairly soon on this. And, and this is this could go either way. So this is something that has it's not just about sort of ideas floating around. This is this is firmly anchored in the battle between the parties as the as the conservatives became more Eurosceptic, Labour under Blair became more pro-European. 
But yet there were always limits to that. Yeah, I'd say the Blair administration was still one of the most europhobic administrations in Europe because of, again, the American connection. So rooted both in those kind of EU politics at a broader level, but also the politics of the in nation on, state itself. Ongoing domestic issues. And, you know, periodically in Britain, there are there are these sort of huge fractures in, in parties. There were a couple of them in the 19th century. And the argument of, of some political theorists is that at the moment, the Conservative Party is going through one of these these fractures over over the question of Europe. Uh, Lauren, what's the state of Euroscepticism in France right now? I think that it's uh, certainly there's always been a sort of Euroscepticism. Remember, uh, the European Constitution was actually uh, a revision was put to the vote, and I believe it was 2004, mm-hmm. uh, and it was actually voted down in France, um, and I believe in Belgium as well. Mm-hmm. But usually what you see in terms of Euroscepticism, and at least in my experience of it in France, is that it's often much more economic. So it has to do with usually because so much of the, I think, tangible effects of European integration in France beyond, you know, the the open borders has to do with agriculture and has to do with sort of farmer subsidies, the ability to trade and bring in goods. So often when you sort of talk about European Euroscepticism, it usually has to do with these kind of, I, I would call them pocketbook issues. Of course, in the last year or two, with the sort of international crises of migration and terrorism that are kind of, I think, maybe in the process of reshaping the political discussions around Europe in France. But really, I would say it's more economic, at least in my experience. And so what other maybe one or two issues, and I think maybe we've mentioned a few of them here, would we highlight as being the main challenges facing the EU today? Um, And Don, if you want to jump in here. All right. I think Lauren just mentioned one of them, which is this mounting the issue of migrants um, flooding into Europe and the public debate that that is is generating, Um, you know, the sort of street level debate, but also the way that it's working into the the debate at the national political level. Um, That is going to be, I think, as, as taxing on the future of the European Union or the direction it goes as the economic crises of the last several years and, you know, the the debt crises, the discussions on on whether or not you can actually withdraw from from the the European Union as as the referendum in in Britain is going to to sort of play itself out or or determine. Um, so I think that that's one of the obvious um, challenges that's going to shape what happens with the EU and and just sort of build a little bit on what Chris and Lauren said um, before leaving the Brexit. I think one of the interesting implications for however that turns out tying into these other issues is what's that going to be mean in terms of precedent for other uh, member states where there have been varying levels of Euroscepticism as well? Is this going to signal if Europe decides, or excuse me, Britain decides to withdraw, is that going to signal that there are reasons or there is an ability to, to exit the European Union? And will it be over the issue of migrants? Will it be over the issue of debt? Will it be over the issue of political sovereignty? So I think that's another dimension to what's going on in Britain, I think, is, is relevant to the, all, the entirety of the European Union. Do you think that the challenges that Europe is facing right now are, are unprecedented? Is it in its greatest moment of crisis since the formation of the EEC? I don't know whether I would say this is its greatest crisis, but it's certainly in a, in a unique, there's certainly a unique confluence of, of issues here. 
if you look at the sort of the, the global issues, the genuinely global issues that are impacting on Europe, the is issues of um, of security, of migration, and of the the problems in the global economy, those three things have been brought together in a way they haven't been brought together before. And at the level, you know, and this is creating tremendous tensions within the European Union. The tensions we've seen between Germany and Greece, which are magnified, we've seen the tensions that 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 the the sort of more affluent northern and western parts of the European Union feel about introducing countries who from from a, an anglo-german perspective really sh you know for, for a lot of people think these places like Greece shouldn't be in the european union because they 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 simply they simply can't balance the books and so and so forth and and then when this is compounded with the issue of immigration and and the european union which has which has pursued open borders and even though britain for example didn't didn't join the schengen agreement it's still party to the European Union's uh, immigration laws, there, there's this tremendous tension between the desire to free and liberate uh, labor mobility and then the, the problems that brings in its wake. The, these are problems of globalization. And so, in a sense, Europe's dealing with ongoing problems that are affecting the whole world in different ways. And so for our final uh, kind of segment and question here and your final comments, um, given what we know about the EU's past here and what we've discussed, we just wanted to ask all three of you, where do you see Europe going from here? Well, that's not a big question at all, is it? Um, not at all. We, we only ask the real small questions here. You know, it, it, as Chris said, this is, it's not a unique moment in, in the EU's history in the sense that there's always been an open debate about what the EU means, the extent to which it should expand, the extent to which it can contract. There are these confluence of events that do make it somewhat more unique. And I think that makes it a little bit difficult to, to sort of predict what this outcome is. But I think if you look back at the evolution of the European Union, it is, it's adaptable, even if it hasn't perfectly adapted to each of the situations. And I think that's my take is it will find a way to keep evolving. It'll, it'll find a way to redefine itself. I think that we've gone perhaps too far down this road for a complete dismantling of the European Union. I think that, that some of these institutions have been cemented in place. Well, what that looks like in 10 years is difficult to, to see. Are we going to stop seeing an expansion? Are we going to see some member states being allowed um, to withdraw and therefore sort of see a shrinking backwards in on, the, on its original membership. I think those are possibilities, but I don't really see the European Union experiment dying out and this just sort of being a footnote in history that once there was this sort of continental-wide system, I think in some shape or form, it's going to continue to, to, to move forward. I, I agree with you. There's too much momentum behind the, the European Union. Um, it, it's, it's suffering from problems at the moment, but I, I think a majority of people would say that, that these problems are best faced together. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, are, and, you know, if countries, you know, effectively opt out of the European Union, the, the, the problems are greater. You cease to have any kind of input into this, this gigantic um, politico-economic unit that's still going to be heavily influential on, on your, your national trajectory. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, although it's a, a incredibly complex and problematic entity, it's it's here to stay and and it's tr it, it will transform. But I don't think it's going to disappear and I don't think it should. I think it would be a, a very, a very bad thing if it fell apart. 
Mm-hmm. Lauren, uh, you're in many ways at the fault line of the European experience right now. Uh, in Greece, working at a migrant center, is that right, in Athens? Yeah, I'm actually uh, working at a refugee sort of uh, informal refugee camp that's uh, a bunch of them have sprung up in Piraeus, in, in the port, um, so right across from where the container ships are. How does the future of Europe look from your vantage point? I mean, I think that I am also pretty sanguine about the future of Europe. Uh, I think that these sorts of crises are, in some ways, the the confluence of them is is unprecedented, um, and it can feel sort of bleak. But at the same time, I mean, going to the port, you come through, you know, this gorgeous Athens uh, subway system, um, and everywhere you go, even in a place, you know, uh, like Greece, that's had such a sort of complicated relationship recently with uh, European integration, you see the EU flag uh, flying and you see projects that have, uh, you know, signs with the EU logo on it. So um, I think that there are things that integration has brought that are still really held as important by people. You know, to give a couple of other examples, uh, the student exchanges that happened throughout European universities through the Erasmus program are deeply important. Uh, people, you know, young people use these programs, and they're a really sort of central part of, I think, the development of, acad- uh, of, of academic thought in Europe. Similarly, the uh, it's not an EU project, per se, but the largest non-sporting televised event in the world uh, is the Eurovision European Song Contest. You know, it's a hundreds of millions of people watch it. And so I think that there are these processes uh, that bring people in Europe together uh, that I think even more so, you know, than a parliament uh, sitting in Brussels passing regulations, uh, these are stronger than that. All right. Well, uh, that's a, an optimistic note on which to end this discussion, um, <laughs> with Eurovision no less. Uh, so I just want to thank everyone for, for coming. It's been great talking with you. Our guests yeah. today have been Don Hempson, Specialist in European and International Affairs with OSU's International Studies Program, Chris Otter, Specialist in British History with OSU's Department of History, and Lauren Henry, Historian of Modern France and the French Empire with OSU's Department of History. A big thank you to everyone. Thank, thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This episode of History Talk Podcast was brought to you by Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Stephen Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Badiandi and Mark Sikulski. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thanks for listening.